Once a month, we recite the Nicene Creed together. The Nicene Creed is a third century statement of faith that's from Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The Gospel of the Lord. Today, in our exploration of the events leading up to the cross of Christ from the book of Luke, we of course come to the Last Supper, and it's here that Christ instituted for his followers this practice that we call communion or Lord's Supper, or in some traditions uh, they call it the Eucharist. Uh, There are different words for it, and there are certainly different views of it, and sometimes the debates over these views have been heated. Uh, Sometimes the tone of the debates is enough to make you wonder whether this solemn proclamation of Christ's sacrifice is really what's setting the tone for some people. Some folks seem to want instead a Jesus who brandishes a large crusty loaf of French bread and says, you want a piece of me? I'll give you a second. You got there. But the Lord's Supper is important, and so it's understandable that people are, are passionate about it. Uh, we should be, we should care about it. It'd be worse if we just shrugged and said it doesn't, doesn't matter at all. It's not of first importance, but it does point us to what is of first importance. The death of Christ for sinners points to his glorious return. As Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, we won't get into the debates today. This isn't a sermon on the Lord's Supper as, as a topic. I might mention a few things about the Lord's Supper. Well, certainly I will mention a few things here and there. But we're really looking at what this passage tells us about Jesus in the context of Luke's gospel. As Jesus eats this Passover meal with his disciples and prepares for his death and institutes this this other meal for us, the Lord's Supper. I'm actually dividing this sermon into three sections, three sort of, I don't know if I'm going to call them set points, but they are three sections. Uh, Denial. I'm sorry, desire, denial, and dedication. So three sections, each of which starts with the same letter. It's almost like I'm a real preacher this morning. Desire, denial, and dedication. So we, of course, start in verse 14. Uh, Luke writes, the hour, When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Well, last week... We saw Luke start in verse 1 by saying that the Passover was drawing near. And then later in that same passage, the day came for the lamb to be sacrificed, and now the hour has come. So you can see how Luke is building the anticipation and pushing the story forward. And we certainly see that anticipation in Christ's own words, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. 
And with those words, Jesus really shows uh, his followers something of his heart, his earnest desire as his suffering and death approach is to gather with his friends and to eat this Passover meal. Why is that? Well, I, I know in the next verse it says, you know, because he won't eat it again until the kingdom, and we'll, we'll get to those verses in a little bit. But there's more to the answer to why Jesus desires this than just the fact that he won't, won't be experiencing it again until its fulfillment in the kingdom. You know, no one ever said, you know, I've earnestly desired to have this colonoscopy because my, other one, my next one won't be for another 10 years. There has to be something positive in the experience for you to want to desire it, not just that it's a limited opportunity. Why did Jesus want to eat this Passover with his disciples? Well, this is his, his final meal with them before he dies. He wants to be with his friends, of course. But it's not just any meal that he wants to have with them. They didn't have a potluck in the church fellowship hall. They didn't go to Starbucks and hang out, you know, drinking uh, pumpkin spice lattes and talking about their personal lives. They ate the Passover meal, which is really a, a formal, ritualized meal. And it can hard, be hard for us to imagine earnestly desiring something like that in our culture today. I, I think people tend to think of anything ceremonial or formal as being somehow excessive, unnecessary, maybe even artificial or fake compared to something that just spontaneously flows out, out of the heart. And we tend to think of Christian community as something that we build, something that first and foremost maybe grows and Coffee ship, con coffee ship. What's a coffee ship? Coffee shop conversations, or a women's tea, or a men's breakfast. You know, informal gatherings where we can have these real conversations that develop organic relationships as we share hearts and minds, really get to know one another on that deeper level. And that's all great stuff to aim for, but to me, that's not where Christian community begins. I say to me, to the Bible, I would argue it's not where. Christian community begins. The meal that really defines us as a church and is the foundation of our fellowship is the one that happens every week in this room. It is a formal ritual partaking of the bread and cup. It doesn't explore who we are in our hearts and of ourselves, but it proclaims who we already are in Christ, which is the deepest thing that we already have in common as Christians. As uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed, uh, Christian unity is not something that we achieve, it's something that Christ has already achieved. It's already a reality, and it's simply up to us to live that out. By Christ's death, Paul wrote, uh, you know, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female are all one in Christ Jesus. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread, the scriptures say. That's where our efforts in growing community really need to begin, by believing that this is true of us and letting that reality shape our relationships. This has been maybe a little sidebar, soapbox or something, but, but it does get to why Jesus earnestly desired to eat this formal ceremonial meal rather than just a casual organic meal with his disciples hanging out. Not because he doesn't care about the hearts and lives of his followers. They will have some very real conversations after the Passover meal. But the Passover proclaimed that each individual there, their hearts and their lives, are together part of something greater. It pointed to God's great 
plan of deliverance stretching all the way back to Exodus up to that moment involving those people in the upper room that day. So on one level, this last supper with his apostles is a picture of why Jesus came to die, to save his people in fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Now his ultimate goal, of course, in going to the cross is to glorify God. But God did also desire, he did not need, but he did desire to redeem a people for his own possession, who would live in fellowship with him, enjoying his presence. It's worth noting, it's kind of interesting here, I don't know if you caught it in verse 14 there, says he reclined at table and the apostles with him. They're called apostles in this passage, which is interesting. Most of the time in Luke and the Gospels in general, they're called the disciples. A disciple is simply a learner or an apprentice might be a good translation. But in the book of Acts, Luke, also writing in the book of Acts, switches terms and mostly calls these same men Apostles. An apostle is someone who's sent sort of a representative. The book of Acts is where God builds his church through these apostles, uh, through them calling people to be part of the new covenant people of God. So Christ earnestly desires, desires to eat this meal with his apostles, who are the beginning of the church which is his bride, the people he came to redeem. He's about to suffer greatly, suffer emotionally, physically, spiritually, and he earnestly desires to keep Passover with these people who he's appointed to build. They are the beginnings of the people that he came to suffer for, to celebrate how God showed his glory as he saved his people through terrifying act of judgment in the past, in the Exodus, but that's also exactly what he's going to do again on the cross, to save his people through what really is a terrifying act of judgment. So celebrating this Passover, I would say, points to one layer of Christ's motivation as he goes to the cross. He wants the church. Once again, we made this point last week, Jesus is not being forced to die against his will. We saw how the chief priests and the scribes and Judas and even Satan, they're not calling the shots here. Jesus is in control. No one takes his life. He gives it willingly. He's not even being forced to do this in so many words by God the Father. I know that gets complicated because he's about to pray in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And this brings up mind-boggling questions about the dual natures of Christ. He's both God and, and man and submitting to God the Father's will as a perfect man. And the Father did send the Son in and of itself. Of course, the cross is not something Jesus wants, but he does want the church. He does want to deliver his bride. From heaven he came and sought her. So in the upper room, he sits with her at the table and solemnly takes this meal that points to their unity. That means that when we come to the table, Jesus welcomes us with joy. He is not a reluctant or begrudging host. We didn't talk him in to inviting us. We don't need to talk him into inviting us. He invited us of his own good and gracious and loving will. We cannot possibly 
overstay our welcome. He does not get tired of us or wish we would go. The Savior wants his people to join in this feast, in fellowship with him, to be his people. Of course he does. Of course he does. He laid down his life so that we could come. He wants you to come and to eat. Moving to the second point, which is the denial. I mean, of course, not Peter's denial, which is coming uh, in the chapters to follow, but Jesus' self-denial, which he mentions in verses 16 through 18. For I tell you, he's just said, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There are some confusing things uh, maybe for us about this section. For one thing, it almost seems like Luke has an extra cup in the Lord's Supper because he takes a cup and gives it to them in verse 17 and then later on in verse 20 he's going to give them another cup. Um, The other gospels just have bread followed by the cup. Here there's two. Are we supposed to take two cups in the Lord's Supper, maybe make our our bread and juice double stack, a triple stack, which probably would make a mess, right? That probably wouldn't work, but we don't actually know much about how Passover was celebrated in Jesus' day. Most of our sources actually come from a little bit later, but it's likely that Jesus and his disciples, as a matter of historical fact, did take multiple cups at the Lord's Supper. That doesn't mean that we need to do the same. Uh, and the reason for that is that fa- is fairly simple. Uh, this extra cup belongs with this section in verse 16 here. So Jesus says in verse 16, he will not eat again, I think is the understanding, until the kingdom of God. Verses 17 and 18 show that he will not drink again until the kingdom of God. So looking at the whole passage, just an outline structure, his first point we already covered, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover, where we are now, kind of a second and third point together, or there's one point about the denial with two subpoints. I will not eat again until the kingdom. I will not drink again until the kingdom. And then four and five, he gets to the institution of Passover, take and eat, take and drink. So this extra quote-unquote cup really belongs with this section on Christ's self-denial and not with the section on the instructions for, for Passover. So with that out of, the, out of the way, what this is about, and one thing that is maybe striking or should be striking is he talks about the Passover's fulfillment. That's interesting because we've talked about and really understood Passover as something that points backward in time, right? It looks back to the exodus of Egypt when God delivered his people. But here Jesus sees it also as pointing forward to the kingdom of God. It has a fulfillment which is still future even from our perspective at this very moment, right? So, you know, of course, we've considered also how the Passover points to Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Christ took the judgment that we deserve, so the wrath of God passes over anyone who by faith is covered with his blood. But the full fulfillment is not here yet. The people of God are still, in a sense, strangers in this land longing for his return like the Israelites there is a land promised to us and the new heavens and the new earth beyond pain and suffering and sin and we wait for that 
consummation, that fulfillment, when all the people of God, past and present, are gathered as one in the presence of our Savior, Jesus waits and longs for this as well. He doesn't merely say that there is a fulfillment, and he's not just giving us his dinner plans for the future, I'm not going to eat this again until, but he's, he's, he's making, in a sense, a, a, a vow. There is a note of hope here. Uh, for one thing, I guess I should, should add here, it means he's looking beyond the cross to the resurrection, not just his own resurrection, but your resurrection. So even in the midst of the darkness, there is a note of, of hope and promise here. He knows that he will eat and drink again. And if you've placed your faith in him, you'll be at the table when he does. But Jesus, so it's an expression of hope, this self-denial, but it's also an expression of unwavering determination. Jesus is essentially taking a vow that he will not eat this meal in celebration, nor drink the fruit of the vine, again, celebratory thing to do, until the fulfillment in the kingdom of God. In our sort of language today, it might be like saying, I will not rest until all of this is accomplished. So in one sense, Christ, of course, as we said, has finished his work of redemption. He's offered the sacrifice once and for all for our sins and sat down the work of our salvation, the work of our justification. Everything required for that is done. But through the Spirit, Christ is still building his church, still preparing and purifying his bride. And Jesus is still fasting from the Passover and from the fruit of the vine. He has not forgotten us is what that means. He's not up in heaven having a party while we languish down here under the sun with our, our suffering and our sin. You know, it may be that a thousand years is like a day in God's sight, but his, and his timing is beyond our comprehension. But it's not that Jesus has forgotten us. He's not dawdling. He's not aimless. He's not enjoying the joys of his Father's presence, and so he's completely forgotten or uh, numb to what we're going through. He doesn't lack a sense of urgency. He's still reigning over all things for his people, still tending the lampstand of each local church on earth, to use the imagery from Revelation 1, still caring for each of his sheep. And he will lead us home, is leading us home, with the same focused determination that led him to the cross. That's the point here. He anticipates this fulfillment as much as you do and more. He will not rest until he has brought all of his people to the kingdom of God and seated us all together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then and only then will he eat and drink with us all together. Well, finally then, we come to the dedication uh, by which I, of course, mean the dedication of the bread and wine as elements of what we know as communion, Lord's Supper. Uh, starting in verse 19, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this, is, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Two aspects to bring out here, of course, are the remembrance and the covenant. I mentioned that there are different views of 
communion. Christians of different backgrounds have different views. Is there a bodily presence of Christ in some way or a spiritual presence? Or is it merely a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice? We just are remembering what Christ did for us, sometimes called the memorial view. And that idea of a memorial view is sometimes, um, I think, misunderstood, even mocked. I saw a meme recently that it used that scene from the old Titanic movie where, like, the old lady is at the end there and she's talking about uh, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio character that she fell in love with years ago who died on the, uh, the shipwreck and all that sort of thing. And uh, the idea is that in this meme, that this is how the memorial view talks about communion, is how she talks about Leonardo DiCaprio, that, you know, he saved me in every way that, that a person can be saved. He exists now only in my memory. That's how the, the memorial view is sometimes portrayed. You know, a sentimental version of that might be one that focuses on the heart rather than the memory. Maybe, maybe this is how you might think when you take communion. You know, Jesus, are you near? Are you far? Wherever you are, I, uh, my heart will go on anyway. Or at least there's something going on in my heart, and that's what's important. You know, we, we need to understand, though, that remembering in Scripture is so much more than just not forgetting Passover was a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt, but that means so much more than just like a lunch and learn or an edible Old Testament lesson or something like that. In Exodus 2.24, it says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this remembrance is what brings about deliverance of, of the deliverance of, of Israel to come. But for God to remember doesn't mean that he had previously forgotten and now he just happened to think of it again or a reminder went off on his iPhone or I guess his I am phone, right? Or he was off tinkering with some distant nebula and snaps his fingers and said, oh yeah, Abraham's descendants. I was going to make them a nation. I should really get down there and take care of that. No, remembering is not merely a cognitive activity where God happened to think of the past covenant with Abraham. It's his activity of bringing that past covenant to bear on the present as he delivers the Israelites. And when the Israelites celebrated the Passover, they did not simply think about what happened in the past. They brought that story to bear on their present existence. They claimed it as their own story. They didn't say, this is what God did for them, our ancestors, isn't that great? They said, in the words that God gave them even, that this is what God did for for us. He delivered us. So when we take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ, whatever is going on, it cannot be what we would call a mere remembrance. I'm not going to get into the discussion of a special spiritual presence of Christ or not or what that might mean, but if we start with just a biblical understanding of remembrance, then taking the bread and the cup in remembrance of Christ is not simply a, a mental and gastric activity. There's more than going on here than simply we're all thinking about Jesus together. I, although, I mean, even if that's all that's going on, there's something awesome about the church gathering and thinking about Jesus together, right? But communion each week is a special moment in the life of the church, in the life of the believer. We not only look back on Christ's sacrifice and look forward to re his return, but we also receive that as our own story or, or put ourselves into that story. We are part of this greater story of God's plan of redemption. And we affirm that story in one another. 
whether or not he is ontologically present in some special way that he's not normally or, or not, you know, I have a hard time saying that Christ isn't at work in this somehow. Now, it doesn't make us more forgiven. It doesn't give us more of Christ's righteousness or take away more of our sin. Because with your first mustard seed of faith, your righteousness, Christ's righteousness, all of it was given to you with that first mustard seed of faith. All of your sin, past, present, and future, was taken away. That work is done. But do I think that through taking communion, Christ continues the good work that he began in us? Absolutely. This remembrance, I think it is something that grows our faith, that strengthens our assurance, that deepens our love for God and for one another. Is it a means of God saving or justifying grace? Absolutely not. Only the cross is the ground for our justification, for our righteousness before God. But is the Lord's Supper a, a tool of God's sanctifying and sustaining grace? I think it is. And it is a meal of covenant renewal. And that brings us to the final subpoint. Uh, this cup, Jesus said, is the new covenant, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus understands his death to initiate a new covenant between God and his people. And he is, in a way, referencing what God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah speaks of a new and unbreakable covenant where God will do a whole list of things, put his law within his people, write it on their hearts, says he will be their God and he, they will be his people. They will all know him from the greatest down to the least. He will forgive their iniquity and remember sin no more. That is a beautiful covenant. We probably should talk a little bit about what a covenant is, though. Because a covenant, it's a deep and really important biblical concept to grasp. We sometimes compare it to a contract. Like a contract, it is sort of a, an agreement or an arrangement between two parties. But the key difference between a covenant and a contract is, is that a covenant is fundamentally not just a list of obligations and agreements, but a relationship. The heart of a covenant is that it is a relationship, a biblical covenant. Going back to the Old Testament and ancient Near Eastern context, it takes two parties that were previously unrelated and essentially makes them family, makes them together. The best example, of course, today is marriage. You take two people who are unrelated, in most states anyway, and they now become family. Two <laughs> unrelated people become family. You know, if you have a contract, like, say, a lease on an apartment, you know, that's a really narrow agreement about the exchange of money and the use of real estate. It says nothing about your relationship outside of that. You can rent from a total stranger, from an employer, from a close friend, from your own parents. Obviously, that lease agreement, that contract can affect your relationship, right, if things go badly. But the contract didn't create or define your relationship. You might have no relationship to that person or a completely different relationship that was already there or developed outside of that contract. That relationship is essentially outside of the contract. But a covenant creates and defines a new relationship between two parties. If you get married, 
that marriage, those vows define the entirety of your relationship with your spouse, and you really now have no relationship outside of that marriage. The covenant is, any, is, is everything. That's why it's awkward if you relate to each other in, in, in other ways. If you were to hire a spouse and uh, now you've got employee, employer, that would be pretty weird. I don't know if anybody's experienced that. I would think it would be weird. I can't even have my wife teach me voice lessons because to have a teacher and student relationship uh, just would be bizarre, which is a shame because she's really good, but it's not going to happen. So if you wish I would sing better, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen <laughs> because uh, my marriage is everything uh, as far as our relationship is concerned. So. <laughs> but the point for us today is that our relationship with God is this new covenant in the blood of Christ. Our relationship with God is entirely created and defined by the blood of Christ, which was poured out for us. He is our God, and we are his people. We know him, and he knows us from the greatest of us down to the least of us. No one is too small. God knows you, and he has forgiven your iniquity and remembers your sin no more. And again there, that idea of remembering. It's not just that God is mentally unaware of our sins. They slipped his mind, and, but he might remember them again someday. No, the point is that our sin and our guilt no longer has any bearing on how God sees us today. So when we take the cup and the bread, and we consider the new covenant in Christ's blood, consider that it is the blood of Christ creates and defines the relationship that you now have with God. God does not see you in any way outside the blood of Christ, his son. He sees you and loves you and relates to you only in terms of that new covenant, in terms of the blood of Christ. He does not look at your sin, at your accomplishments, at your, your past or even your future, he sees you in his Son. He sees you and relates to you only in and through the atoning sacrifice, the perfect righteousness of Christ, his beloved Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can even come and call you our Father. We have been thinking about the cost of that, that you sent your only son to take the penalty of our sin, because we didn't want to call you father. Uh, we wanted to um, be in charge of our own lives. We did not trust that your way was best, did not trust that you had our best interests in mind, didn't trust in your love. And so each of us in our hearts rebelled against you, sought our own way, offended against you and, and your holy laws, and yet that you would send your own son whose commitment to you was unwavering and perfect, whose righteousness was flawless, faultless. Send him to die, to take penalty for our sin, to pay the price that we would have spent eternity paying for. Your love for us is 
uh, beyond our comprehension. And we thank you that we can know, we can know because of what Christ has done for us, that we have a Father in heaven, that we are accepted and perfectly beloved by you. Lord, you know well all the ways that our hearts tend to doubt this, that we uh, doubt that you could possibly love us for who we are, and so we either begin to seek to impress you with our uh, feeble righteousness in our pride, or we despair of thinking we can come before you, or we just have in the back of our mind that, that little voice that tells us that um, we don't belong here. Yet, we do, because Christ died. Because he died, we have every right in him to come before you. Uh, this is overwhelming, your love and your grace for us. And grant that we might never cease to be overwhelmed by your deep love for us. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name.